Welcome back to the Lafayette Podcast. My conversation this week is with Adrian Waldridge. Adrian writes for the Badger column at The Economist, where he analyzes British life and politics. We talked about the hectic year that was 2017, the implications of the election in June, and the ongoing negotiations over Brexit. We discussed the future for Theresa May and if we have reached peak Corbyn. But we also looked at some of the more fundamental dynamics at play in British politics, what left and right means today, and what's happened to the centre ground, if it can be revived, and if so, how. Prior to covering Britain, Adrian wrote about business and US politics, and so he's in a really good place to understand some of these underlying shifts that we are witnessing in politics. And this conversation provides some crucial context to the issues we will face in the coming year. So check it out. I hope you enjoy. Adrian Waldridge, Happy New Year. Thanks for speaking with us today. So the past year has been quite interesting for British politics. A lot of conventional punditry has been proven wrong, especially with the election and the rise of Corbyn. He was supposed to be decimated in the election and he wasn't. How has your understanding of British politics changed over the last year? Well, up until May of this year, I was writing a column in The Economist called Schumpeter. And I was writing essentially about business, global business trends. And then I was offered the job of being Badger, the political editor of The Economist. And I ummed and erred about whether I should take this job because I was worried that I wouldn't have enough to write about. We just had this referendum. Everything seemed to have settled down. We'd made a decision to leave Europe. It was a matter of, uh, of tidying that up. Um, and so I eventually took it, but with, 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 with some, so, took the job, but with some, worries about not having enough to write about. And I started phoning up friends of mine who I'd been at university uh, with, who are now in politics and saying, can I come and have a chat and things like that. And then within a week of taking this job, suddenly Theresa May called the election. Uh, and so I was thrown into covering the election. Um, and I hadn't covered the Brit- Brit- British election since the, the, the 1990s. And it's, 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 it's a very rapid fire thing. And of course, we had an exceptionally um, unexpected election results and an exceptionally interesting but bad, badly run election by the Tories. So having thought that British politics would be boring and simply a matter of implementing Brexit, I suddenly um, was confronted with an extremely interesting election. And since then, we've had a just relentless, endless um, political crisis. So uh, I would say my, my conclusion about British politics is since taking over and since starting to follow it carefully, it's been unexpectedly interesting and also ex- unexpectedly time consuming in terms of trying to cover what's going on. And what did you find the key lessons of that election to be in terms of Labour's strategy and the Tory strategy? What sort of has changed in the way that you understood them? Well, there are two things that were, were really dramatic. One is that um, Britain still hasn't made up its mind over Brexit. The 48-52 result has not been taken uh, as decisive by the 48% of people who, who, who voted to stay. They still want to relitigate that. And the British people um, during the election decided they didn't want to give a blank check to Theresa May to go for her sort of fairly hard version of Brexit. So even people, I think, who who had voted in favour of leaving were very reluctant to to just hand everything over to Theresa May. So people are ambivalent. People are people are divided. And so we got the, the exactly the result, I think, that the British people wanted, which is a very weak um, conservative government just trying to, 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 to hobble on from day to day, which certainly doesn't have um, the legitimate, this certainly doesn't have a legitimate claim to push through a very clear version of Brexit. Now, the most extraordinary thing that happened during that election, of course, was Corbyn. Um, we all expected Corbyn to lose and lose extremely badly. We all expected him to be out on his ear 
shortly after the election. I remember sitting there on the day of the election talking to a very well-connected uh, Labour Party friend of mine, and he was telling me that basically the leading Blairite, Chucker and Muna, um, uh, being one of them, were that day um, getting people to come in to be manning the phones, to be running their leadership campaigns. So they were so convinced that, 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 that Corbyn was going to do dismally. I don't know if you saw the BBC programme about Neil Kinnock, uh, Neil Kinnock's son, Stephen Kinnock. They followed Stephen Kinnock and they conveyed to him the news that evening, the, the Labour Party, his party, his father's party, which his father was the leader, and he's a very prominent member, had done unexpectedly well. And the look of shock on yeah. his face when he was told this, because he was prepared you know, to become the next leader or to, to, to run for the leadership because, because Corbyn was going to do very badly. Everybody within the Labour Party um, expected Corbyn to do badly. I think probably Corbyn expected to do badly. So it wasn't just the rest of the, it wasn't just the Conservatives who expected a disaster. Corbyn expected, I think, probably, certainly the rest of the Labour Party did. And he did amazingly uh, well. And he solidified his control over the Labour Party. He normalised himself. It was a, is this a person who has stood for a whole series of policies on the IRA, on terrorism, on nationalising industries, which are completely outside the mainstream, and he has now defined them as, as mainstream, or as he certainly is acceptable to the British public. And he, he now has complete control over the Labour Party. The, 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 the Blairites and the rest of them are, are marginalised. He can set his own agenda. And he is treated, well, obviously by some students, as you know, this Jeremy Corbyn sort of thing. But broadly, he is treated as a hero by the Labour Party. I've never seen the Labour Party so happy about uh, about a leader because he's in line with, uh, you know, the Labour Party conference, which is a really interesting conference. He is a person who is really liked, adored by the rank and file members. He's liked by the momentum people, but he's also liked by the trade union people. You know, you have the sense of, uh, of with the um, with the Blairites that they were imposing themselves on a slightly reluctant party. That you had lots of people wearing very smart suits, going around telling the people what to do, to cheer here, do that. With Corbyn, he is the embodiment of what the Labour Party really wants. So I think he's he's a very powerful leader of that party. So that was an extraordinary change. And I think what we're seeing um, at the moment is the collapse of a particular set of assumptions about how to run the country. Which you know, which Blair shared, which Cameron shared, which were created in the first place by Mrs. Thatcher. It's falling apart, um, and we don't really know what to replace it with, but, 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 but Corbyn thinks he does, uh, and he, he has an alternative message, and it's going down extremely well. And I think that's you know, if the election were today, Corbyn would win it. Looking at those Brexit negotiations that have been ongoing, and... Yes. And we recently had sort of the end of the first phase of those yes. negotiations. There's not a clear sense of, I guess, the direction that the Tory party is going in, except there's some sort of idea about alignment in terms of regulations and the Irish question has kind of been pushed into long grass. Yes. What sort of are your key takeaways from what has been agreed upon over the last year and in, in, that, uh, in that first phase? And what are sort of the main issues and problems that Parliament will face in the next year? The Tory party is deeply divided uh, over Brexit. The country is deeply divided over Brexit. We're deeply divided about whether we want to leave the European Union. And we're equally divided about what sort of leaving we want that leaving to be if we are to, if we are to leave the European Union. Um, I get the impression that Theresa May wanted to negotiate from strength to say that I'm going to take us out of the European Union and then make a series of concessions to her opponents, which would have 
created some sort of parallel set of set of rules. I think she's now moving in a much more uncomfortable way to the same sort of conclusion, whereby we're you know we're we're, we're aligned with the European Union. We're not a member of the single market. Market. We're not a member of the customs union in legal fact, but we are in 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 in, in all senses of the word. So so we can have fairly smooth trade. Um, so we're heading towards what I would say is probably the Norway option, which is that we accept their rules um, and we don't have a say in making those rules. Um, and I think that's a worse position than we were in when we were a member of the European Union, but it's not a catastrophically bad uh, position. In So I see that as the sort of end, end position we're coming to. They, uh, there'll be talk about the Canadian option, which is, a, which is another ver variation of that, which is a looser arrangement. Um, but I think we're probably moved towards the, 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 the Norway option. Sort of essentially half in, half out, accepting their rules, um, but uh, not making those rules. Uh, that's going to be unpopular with the Brexit people, um, popular with the Remain people, um, an, an unattractive fudge in many ways. You know, we have the issue of the fudge over Northern Ireland, um, which, you know, we, it looked for a moment as though the trade talks were going, the the, the 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 withdrawal talks were going to collapse over that. They didn't collapse, but essentially because we fudged the issue, and I think we'll continue to fudge the issue. And actually, you know, there's nothing wrong with fudging issues, and I think we'll we'll you know, we'll, we'll we'll continue we'll continue to do that. So I see, I see us withdrawing from the European Union. I don't think we're going to have the rise of a centrist party that will stop it. I don't think we're going to have a second referendum which will stop it. Um, and I don't think uh, there is, we'll only stop the withdrawal from the European Union if there's a substantial and sustained change in public opinion. That is, if there's a 10-point lead for re Remainers, which stays over time. We're not seeing that. We're seeing minor fluctuations in opinion, but, but, but not enough for Parliament to go against the will of the people. And I guess that's an interesting segue into what I want to talk about, is, which is the future role of Parliament and, yeah. and democracy in Britain. And mm -hmm. you did an interesting programme recently about Walter Badgett, the name of your column for The Economist, yeah. and his understanding of Parliament. And I think what's, what has been quite interesting uh, since Brexit is kind of the strength of backbench MPs, and in particular Dominic Grieve and the rebellion um, of Remainers against Brexit. And that fighting against sort of this idea of what is supposed to be the will of the people um, in terms of the Brexit referendum. So I was just sort of, I was wondering about how you see the, that sort of debate about the role of parliament and democracy in Britain and where power lies and where sovereignty lies as these Brexit negotiations continue and as this debate about what kind of Brexit we want, to, where that figures in. Well, Britain is a parliamentary democracy and the sovereign entity in this country is um, parliament. Um, and one of the principal arguments of the Brexiteers uh, was to restore the power of Parliament and to reduce the capacity of the European Union to encroach on the power of Parliament and often to dominate Parliament. Um, but strangely enough, they chose to do this through this, this mechanism of the referendum. Um, and, they, and strangely enough, they keep referring to the will of the people. Now, there is nothing that is more un-British than the notion of the will of, will of the people. It's like Robespierre, it's like the French Revolution. Britain has always believed that you need to mediate and moderate the will of the people through representative institutions, through electors, uh, that MPs are not just agents of the people, they are people who are sent to Parliament to make decisions on behalf of the people and are elected every few years. Um, so we have this peculiar paradox of 
the power of Parliament being um, restored, according to the Brexiteers, through uh, a referendum. Mrs Thatcher hated referendums. She regarded them as tools of dictators and autocrats. Um, Burke, you know, Edmund Burke loathed uh, the notion of referendums. Uh, Walter Badgett loathed the notion of referendums. They're, they're very un-English, or un-British, I should say, um, things. Um, and what we're seeing now, again, is in terms of the implementation of the referendum result, uh, we're seeing the invocation of things like Henry VIII powers, the, the, the executive, the government taking huge amounts of sovereignty, a huge amount of sovereignty away from Parliament and uh, in order to push through this legislation. Um, and uh, again, a peculiarity that the majority, I would say probably three quarters of MPs, do not believe in Brexit, do not want Brexit, and yet they feel compelled to vote in favour of Brexit on both the Conservative side and on the Labour side because 52% of the population um, expressed their opinion and because 52% of the population were told in, in the terms of the referendum that this, this, this would be a deciding uh, vote. So I think it's very difficult to go back on it. I would like to see no more use of referendums. I wouldn't like to, I would like us not to have had this referendum in the first place because I do believe in, this, in the sovereignty of Parliament by which I, and I do believe in the power of MPs to, to make decisions. I think there's a very interesting question in the future, in the longer term future, of whether we will have uh, a system whereby MPs are so beholden to the political parties that they belong to at the moment, or whether MPs will be, as they were in the 19th century, much more free agents who make their own decisions about uh, about policies. And I can well see a situation in which party, parties become more fragmented and less powerful than they, that, that, than they are at the present. But at the moment, we have um, a situation in which MPs are constrained by essentially their, vote, their lobby fodder uh, in, in Parliament. They're constrained by their parties. Uh, they're constrained now by the result of the referendum. Um, and it's not, it's not a particularly well-functioning, deliberative body. Walter Badgett talked, uh, said that the, the finest thing that you can have, what, the essence of democracy is discussion. And he regarded Parliament as a wonderful thing because we'd reached this age of discussion and the Chamber of Parliament was where discussion takes place at its best. And it's difficult to believe that that's happening now, partly because of the barracking that goes on, um, and partly because of the fact that people are just marionettes for the for the party machines. And I guess equally, the leaders of both parties have moved further to the right and left, and exactly. the, the centre ground in politics has seemingly collapsed. Um, and the Blair Cameron years of uh, Western liberal democratic sort of settlement, which we saw at the start of the 21st century has sort of been repudiated, especially in, that, in the last election. Sure. So I want to ask you where the centre ground of politics is now. And when you have people like Tony Blair, who was on the radio this morning saying that we need a second referendum, and uh, Andrew Adonis, who were also calling for a second referendum, and th these are centrist politicians who are strongly remain calling for a second referendum. E equally today, there was a poll which found that nearly 80% of Labour members um, want a second referendum as well. So wh what should centrist politicians or the centre ground of politics, what should they be fighting for? Uh, is, it, is it sort of the case of trying to remake the case and argue for a return to a, a former situation or, or does it have to fundamentally reassess what it means um, in terms of globalisation and trade to create sort of a centrist politics? One of the oddities of British Parliament politics this year. There have been many oddities in British politics this year, but one of the, the greatest oddities is that the centre ground is always about to be 
reborn. I mean, the centre party is always about to emerge and it never seems to emerge. And that's actually quite strange because, as you know, as we've discussed, 48% of people voted to remain uh, in the EU. There are a lot of centrists around, particularly in metropolitan centres like, uh, like London. They feel powerless. They feel as though they don't, don't have a voice. And yet... They feel as though, the, the, as, you, as you rightly say, that the two, cent the, the two main parties have moved either to the right or the left. And yet this much heralded rebirth never seems to happen. Um, and it's difficult to explain that wh wh why that is the case. I think there are two reasons why it's the case. Um, one is that it's always members of the Ancien Regime who present themselves as being champions of the, of the centre ground. They all seem to be lords, sirs former prime ministers, former members of the old, old, old regime, and people instinctively don't like that. It's partly because they seem to be wanting to relitigate a battle which they've lost, and partly because they look like yesterday's men. You know, Tony Blair, people really do not like Tony Blair. I mean, the visceral reaction of dislike of Tony Blair is, is, is huge. Lord Mandelson, um, uh, various uh, liberal Democrats. I suppose the only real centre party, the leader of the centre party of this country, is now Vince Cable, as it were, mm -hmm. who's, who's seven, seventy-five. It seems, you know, very much yesterday's men. So you you can't rewin this battle um, if if you fight it with yesterday's people. I saw a, a, a bizarre interview um, in the Guardian over the Christmas period with with with, with Lord Malik Brown presenting himself as the voice of the centre ground. Well, this is somebody who's a member of the House of Lords, who was a high-ranking official in the United Nations, who lived outside England for a very long time, who's the director of at least six different companies, who's closely involved with the Soros Fund uh, Foundation. I mean, he's just not the face of the future. Um, so you need a new cast of characters, younger people, just as the pro uh, leave people, the people who really made the, the difference, people like Dan Hannan, um, were, were young, unknown people. You need a bunch of young, unknown people to be leading the, um, the, 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 the revival of the centre ground. But secondly, the centre ground needs to understand why it lost. You know, and you know, it was a narrow vote, but it was a vote in which the whole establishment said stay in. And nevertheless, the people said, no, we want to leave. That's an amazing thing to do for people to take on the whole global establishment. And it was because productivity growth was too slow. It was because people felt that immigration was negatively impacting their lives um, in, in various uh, important ways. And it was because they didn't think growth was inclusive enough. They thought that the, 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 the establishment was self-serving. Uh, many of its, uh, those objections were true. So you need to have uh, new people, new ideas, and a willingness to understand why, you know, why, why neoliberalism, if I can use that short, short term, didn't work as well as it should do. And I haven't yet seen, I've seen, I've seen signs that people are beginning to think about this. And Tony Blair, actually, strangely enough, is, is, is his foundation is doing some of the best work, some of the most interesting work on that, mm -hmm. but not enough, because I think a lot of people who want to say, the cosmopolitan elites say, the reason we lost is because we didn't shout loud enough. But the reason they lost is that, 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 that there were too many self-serving people, too little inclusive growth. Um, and you have to do, so what you have to do is, is something very, very fast. You have to rethink your policies very quickly in a way that makes concessions to the people who voted to leave. You have to get a new set of personnel very quickly. And you have to set up a party machine uh, very, very quickly.
Um, and that's very hard to do by the end of the year. And finally, I think, you know, another of my recommendations would be don't accept knighthoods. I and mean, the idea that Nick Clegg can present himself as the great champion of the middle ground of, uh, of, of relitigating this vote whilst also accepting a knighthood is crazy. What do you make of the argument that the, the fault lines in British politics have shifted and that it's more about socio-cultural issues rather than socio-economic issues. And I'm thinking particularly of uh, David Goodhart's book, The Road to, the Road to Somewhere, um, which essentially divides British people amongst those that are in the category of anywheres and those that are somewheres. Um, what do you make of that argument, or what do you make of the argument that, that, that the fault lines have changed and the, the fundamental dynamics of British politics have shifted? I think one of the things, uh, Brexit, for some people, is all about making Britain more Britain, more, more Britain more British. Um, and in fact, what's happening is British politics, in many ways, is becoming more American. It's becoming more an issue of cultural identity, individual identity, um, and it's the fault lines of politics are no longer economic struggles between the rich and the poor, the owners of capital and people who sell their labor, but between various identity groups. It's becoming a matter of culture wars. Um, and I think that the issues that are going to dominate British politics over the next uh, uh, few months and perhaps few years will be cultural issues. We've seen that with the, the issue of the blue passports, which were in fact black passports. Um, we've seen it with the issue of the Royal Yacht Britannia. Um, again and again, you know, cultural issues catch fire in people's minds. And it's because, as Goodhart rightly says, there is a cleavage in British politics um, and indeed in global politics between people who um, are rooted in particular places and who mostly manual workers uh, or older people who have a sense of identity bound up with their countries um, and quite often the regions where they live and this cosmopolitan elites of which you know I would regard myself a member as a member and you know the economist is in many ways the house magazine of the cosmopolitan elite um, if I can say the house magazine the airplane magazine these people are flying around all around the world um, and I think I think he's right about that that that, 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 that is a profound cleavage and that's why issues like passports issues issues like yachts issues like immigration asylum seekers and the rest of it catch such such fire because they're about your identity you know, it's not just a matter of having a debate about who gets what bit of the pie. It's a matter of having a debate about what sort of person you are. And people get obviously very emotional about that. I want to take us back to how this uh, impacts the main, lab the main parties, Labour and the Conservatives, and how they could then go on to build sort of a coalition which seems to represent centrist views, but also comprehensively wins an election, which neither of the parties have yet been able to do. And in particular, Theresa May's platform, the last election, really against the citizens of nowhere seems to seems to me that she tacked towards this uh, idea of targeting the somewhere people but mm -hmm. failed um, comprehensively to have anything to say to the people who represent those from anywhere and those that are yeah. strongly pro-remain so what does this mean structurally for the conservative party in terms of uh, how they could create ideas that move that move towards the center ground and capture both these segments of people? Well, what the Conservative Party tried to do in the last election was essentially um, become a party uh, of the white working class. They, the Conservative Party has always sort of advanced by incorporating new groups um, and they were very good under Cameron at incorporating the cosmopolitan elites 
um, with all the stuff about the environment and the Notting Hill liberalism and gay rights and women's rights and things like that and minority rights. And so they, they, they bought in quite a lot of those things and they thought that they could add to that group, uh, add to that position by then incorporating the white working classes. Um, so they would become an ever, ever broader coalition. Take the Cameron coalition, bag that and add more onto it so that the target seat that they had in, in, in mind in many ways is Bishop Auckland. Uh, northern, working class, slightly frayed, voted to leave. Um, they thought they could bring that in. They concentrated a lot of resources in that sort of seat all, all, all around that area. And they discovered two things uh, during the election, which is why the election was, 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 was such a failure. One was that those people are quite hard to win over. The Tory brand is very hostile. They, they, they don't like the Tory brand. They're loyal to the Labour Party, and they actually quite liked a lot of the things that Jeremy Corbyn was saying, particularly about redistribution, austerity, things like that. So they devoted a lot of resources and didn't get that. So they failed in that sense, but they also failed to understand that if you reach out, we talk about somewhere versus nowhere and the rest of it to those people, you alienate a lot of other people. They didn't. They thought they could simply build on the Cameron coalition uh, and add to it. So not only did they not win Bishop Auckland, but they lost Battersea um, by ten thousand votes. Uh, and so that is the essence of the problem um, for the for, for for the Tory party at the moment. How do you regain Battersea whilst also trying to win over this 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 the, the, the Bishop Auckland sort of people? And uh, you know, how at least do 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 succeed in? In, in, in not losing both of them. So there's a very passionate argument going on within the, 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 the um, Conservative Party between those people who think they didn't win Bishop Auckland because they just didn't double down enough. They've got to go further in that direction, become more and more the party of the white working class, more and more the party of nationalism, more and more the party of social uh, conservatism and nationalism and have a better leader than Theresa May, perhaps Boris Johnson, perhaps somebody with a populist touch, and then they can win that. Um, and the other faction within the Conservative Party say, no, 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 we need to retreat back to the Cameron thing. We did actually win under Cameron, mm -hmm. and we need to be a much more metropolitan, elite, liberal uh, party. And it's, you know, it's, it's very difficult because that party needs to have, you know, the uh, business elite behind it. But it also, you know, needs to try and have some, some offering, as they say in the sort of marketing jargon, for, 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 for a broader group of, uh, of voters. Uh, my my feeling at the moment is that they won't win the next election. That that um, Corbyn will win the next election because I think people are very sick of austerity and um, very angry with uh, being promised a lot of things that that, that, that weren't delivered, uh, and they'll just about swallow Corbyn uh, in order to, to 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 get some change. Also, they've been in power for for a long time, and that that will inaugurate because Corbyn is a very hardline leftist. A period of incredible turbulence in British history. Is that, is that prediction that Corbyn will be the next Prime Minister on the basis of, of thinking that there will be an election soon in the next year? Or No, I think that they will. I don't think there will be an election within the next year. My prediction is that we that Brexit goes ahead, that we um, just about, that, that, that we drift. We drift out of the EU. We fudge and we drift and we find something that can just about be acceptable. So we do leave the EU, that we don't have a second referendum, that there isn't, that, 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 that um, Mrs May isn't voted out of office and that we just yeah, drift towards the exit. So, so we, she, she um, and we have an election in 2021, 22, um, and that I think just, just about that Corbyn wins that, who, although he's, you know, age is not on 
on his side, but I think it will be a rerun of the last election. And the Labour Party has got very, very good ground operation. It's got very good command of new media, social media, and it has a capacity to put those two things together, the ground troops and the, and, 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 and the command of social media to, to create a, an unheard of, uh, powerful political uh, machine, I think, in this country. I'm interested that you think that Corbyn will maintain sort of popularity which he's had recently. I mean, some people have said that we've reached peak Corbyn, that mm -hmm. his popularity will start to reign, especially given the fact that in the last election, the main claim of the Conservatives was that he was unelectable, that he couldn't be a leader. And now maybe if the debate shifts onto other areas such as policy uh, and uh, his, his strategy, his own personality, then maybe... Uh, his popularity will wane. Do, so do, do you see his popularity as being... Well, I think in many ways it's not just a matter of, uh, of um, parties winning election, it's governing parties that lose election. And this government is doing the best that it possibly can to lose the next election, you know, but alienating voters. Um, they're not offering anything for working class voters. You know, we have continued no wage growth, Continue. I'm not saying that they can just summon wage growth out of nowhere, but the, the, the formula is that the, the, the people aren't getting better off. And so it's not surprising they'd vote to get rid of um, uh, the regime that's that's kept them fa the, the fairly poor. And I think that Corbyn in himself is a sort of, I can't work out actually, and I'm, I'm ambivalent about this, is he playing this really well, i.e. that he's a blank slate, he doesn't do very much, he just lets the governments hang themselves, you know, don't, don't interfere with a man who's in the business of hanging themselves. Um, and sits on top of a very well-run political machine, I think, in terms of in terms of getting votes. Or is he failing to capitalise on his opportunity to create policies? I'm not entirely sure about that, but I don't think ultimately people will vote for him because he's got a great set of policies. They will vote for him because they, that because he, he has this pop 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 appeal, and because they hate the the the, the established parties. So I think you have to remember he did very very well in the last election, despite the fact that his own party in Parliament thought he was going to lose. You know, they weren't campaigning for him. They, you know, they, he couldn't put up any spokesman apart from this tiny team around him because everybody thought that he was he, he, he was uh, useless. So you had these, you know, Diane Abbott and a couple of other people appearing over and over again. This time you'll have a party behind him. They have a lot of spokesmen, a lot of very good spokesmen. Angela Rayner, the shadow education person, real star, a lot of good people. Um, who will be b behind Corbyn, and he has his own momentum people, and he has the trade unions, so he'll have a very powerful set of people at the time, and I don't get any sense that the Tory party, I think the Tory party still believes that the British people, in the end, won't elect such a crazy leftist. Adrian Mordridge, thank you for speaking to us today. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. This episode was produced by Ben Frasher and edited by Daniel Ray. Please rate and subscribe on iTunes. To find out about upcoming podcasts, like us on Facebook.